And we're live. Welcome to another week of the Questioning Commission. My name's Chase. As always, I'm joined by... My name is Gonzo Shemapumulu. It's a Sunday, a good day to be alive. We are taking a bit of a different approach, exploring something new this week. We're trying to hop into visuals. We've been told there's a need for visuals as well to kind of help and work with the audio as well. So we're trying to give that a go this week. And here we go. Yeah, it's, it's kind of exciting, a bit of nerves here and there, to be honest with you. But let's give it a go, see what happens. What are we talking about today? 100%. Um, today we're looking at... Uh, the graveyard of empires, Afghanistan, you mm. know, it's a lot has been said, you know, it's dominating the news. And we thought with our backgrounds in security and so forth, we just give it a go. You know, we try to explain what is exactly going on because everybody says this happened, that happened. And these two sides to this uh, story. So I think we're going to try to decipher both sides of the story and just give you like a broader context to, to this. And as Quinzo mentioned, if you find this interesting, we might have a graphic or two in this thing. If you just want to see our face, um, come on YouTube. Uh, <laughs> it'll be there. And yeah, you know, I'm looking forward to trying out this new format. So I think without further ado, yes. let's, let's jump straight into it. So you just want to yeah. start us off with like a little background into it. Yeah, I, I think before we actually even get to that, right, I think it's kind of important to signify and state how we'll be going about this. And yeah. obviously, we don't have enough time to cover all points of the story. And to some degree, you might say that you're not objective because you don't really have the perspective of the Taliban because they choose to share what they want to share at particular points in time that kind of makes it difficult to get to where they stand on the, on the whole matter of domination, invasion, US troops and allies and whatever the case might be. So our approach will kind of be simple, but very deep diving as well. So we're going to first look at why the USA went to Afghanistan as well. It's well noted, it's well known, but just to rehash the point and be clear on why they went to Afghanistan. Secondly, we're going to look at who the Taliban is, because a lot has been said, as you've pointed out earlier a lot has been said about them the kind of people they also want to look at who they are why they exist and kind of look at what life was like under them between 1996 and 2001 and then most importantly towards the end we're going to try and look at what has been dominating the news the money spent the lives lost and other related matters as well so without further ado we can get get the ball rolling when it kick us off no, I, I just want to preface this once and for all, you know, uh, the views yeah. represented in this podcast represent only ours and not any organization or person that we're affiliated with and so forth. And the reason that we're talking about this is, you know, usually we talk about South African topics and so forth. And it's, uh, you know, as much as you try to be unbiased and, uh, about, and neutral about it, um, it's hard when you're south african to talk about south african things without coming from a standpoint and i think that's why yeah. we're also tackling afghanistan because we have no skin in the game you know uh we, we're gonna call mm. a spade a spade and uh, you know whatever it is you know both have messed up on other sides you know this isn't the american podcast it's not afghanistan podcast this is the questioning commission and we question everything so yeah be it African, American, European, if there's a question to be asked, we will ask this question out of fear or favor. So I, yeah, let's let's get the ball rolling and see what, what we can make of this. So it's September 11th, it's 2001, and I was probably in grade three or something, or grade one, I'm not quite sure, but I was quite young at that point in time, and I don't quite remember what I was doing and where I was. 
but the twin towers in america were attacked it was called the terrorist attack and both of them collapsed a number of people lost their lives because two planes were hijacked and it was believed that the people behind the attacks were al-qaeda so that in itself then brought about what we came to know as the fight against terrorism to try and end global terrorism wherever it comes from be it iraq pakistan afghanistan and then as such it was believed that the people behind the terrorist attack on september september 11th were al-qaeda and it was believed that they had a safe haven in afghanistan they were being propped up in afghanistan and trying to find a safe haven there and it was believed that a number of the leaders had lived and or were living in afghanistan and as such then the president at the time president george w bush jr decided to then invade and send his troops over to afghanistan and then they were there for over 20 years and a couple of months and a lot has happened in between the lines and clearly that's not the whole plot of the story because there are other countries in the world as well whereby the americans went to those countries to say we think they might be here we think they might have weapons that might in the long run cause some harm harm to us and then as such and a lot has happened in the middle east a lot of instability and here we are today so do you want to kind of add those countries that the americans also visited to say these countries might also be involved in these terrorist attacks and just kind of plug those holes that have left there so you know uh, it's hard to differentiate because you know for example the taliban they're um uh, they're nomadic people you know they're, they're yeah. constantly moving so uh it's important to note that like in the wake of all this you know um so you obviously had the mujahideen in the 90s the, the 90s and 80s fighting the soviets right and mm. everybody was described this as like this holy hall and lots of people joined from all walks of life you know and the mujahideen had uzbeks in it it had pakistanis it had indians it had you know a variety of people the pashto tribes and so forth and so you can't say necessarily hey the taliban is just afghani um al-qaeda is just afghani mm. you know we we've seen various people i mean you could even go to say that you know um isis for example right and they're, they're two different scales but isis has western recruits so it's hard to narrow point down exactly who and where everything was and just another point to add to what you did was George W in the wake of 9/11 George W Bush wanted Osama and mm. he went to the Taliban and the African uh, government Afghani government and they were like give it to me otherwise we're going to go with you and the, obviously the Afghanis they wanted to protect their people and so so forth and the ultimately they called the bluff of the Americans they thought nothing was going to happen and all coincided and it's also important to note that Osama bin Laden's from the United Arab Emirates um he's not born in Afghanistan as, as many believe he was actually a, a wealthy um businessman and then he gave it up uh, he lost favor of his father and he gave it all up to be, go become a jihadi as one would might call it so um th- there's a lot of links and just to touch on one last point um Afghanistan has always been at war and first there was the British that tried to invade it and use it as a buffer zone between Russia and China and then in the 90s um they the Afghanistan became a socialist uh, the 80s Afghanistan became a socialist state 
and um, this really angered the Russians and they went in to invade. And the Americans, uh, the CIA is well documented, actually started providing weapons and arms to the Afghanis and Mujahideen to fight the Russians. I mean, they were shooting down Russian airplanes in the mountains with these uh, propelled uh, ballistic um, RPGs and so forth. So all the tactics, uh, many of the tactics from the older Mujahideen, which later migrated to the Taliban, was um, tactics learned from the CIA. I mean, uh, it's well documented. So, you know, there's been amalgamation and the CIA has had, always had a large presence in this. And this, this relationship goes before long before the 9-11 and so forth. So it's important to note that there has been, was a relation, even a working relationship between the Mujahideen and America and so forth. Um, and that, that, that's kind of what gave way to these, um, to these rumors that Osama was actually working alongside or, you know, on the Americans' radars as like a friendly person. And then obviously post 9-11, he was persona non grata in the sense. So if you just want to highlight who the Taliban is and so forth. You, you, yeah, apologies about that. I think that's part of the learning process is to try to delve into this whole new nature of having visuals and graphics as well involved as you try to make sense of this Taliban situation and just try to move forward. But the Taliban are quite... Uh, they're quite a contentious group. They raise quite a, a lot of, roughly quite a, a number of feathers because some people support the Taliban, some people say the Taliban is bad. And depending on where you come from, right, it's, 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 it's up to you to choose because you could easily find a way of saying the Taliban are good for this, that, and the other. Some say they're not good. But look, I'll, I'll borrow here from the BBC, right? They've presented this very good article that was published on the 18th of August quite recently as things have picked up steam in Afghanistan and they mentioned quite a number of of important points regarding the the Taliban so I'll just quickly skim off the top here and then we can move on from there on right so here they state that the Taliban emerged in the 1990s in northern Pakistan following the withdrawal of the Soviet troops from Afghanistan okay and it is believed that the the Taliban's predominantly Pashtun movement first appeared in religious seminars, mostly paid by money from Saudi Arabia. And then from there on, they moved to present the Taliban leadership structure. I'd like to share the screen here, if you could allow me to do so, just to kind of give the people watching a, a sense of what I'm talking about here. So this would be the screen in question. Okay, so let's go here and see if we can share this. Okay, let's share. So this will be the Taliban leadership structure. Can you see the screen here? Yeah, so this will be here. Okay, the former Taliban chief justice leader since 2016, authority on political religious matters and military affairs. And then if you take a look here, you can see that it's it's quite a complex structure and it's it's well put out with quite a number of people involved. And if you look at it, Right, there are sectors of this, the military, intelligence, political, economic. Important here, the economic is how the Taliban makes money. They've been known to sell drugs, arms, and other forms of trying to make money as well. So in essence, the Taliban is a group that believes in 
Sharia law, and they believe that the people of Afghanistan should live under Sharia law, which is quite a strict version of the laws that the people currently live under in Afghanistan. So the Taliban quickly extended the influence in 1995 and captured the province of Herat. And this article really captures what, what the Taliban was doing. Let me stop showing you very quickly. So in terms of this, right, the Taliban then came into power in 1996 to 2001. And then after 2001, they were toppled when the Americans paid a visit to Afghanistan, a visit that lasted for over 20 years or close to 20 years, some would say. And then they have quite a number of rules that are, for we that live in democracies might find a bit a bit contentious, they've, they've banned the television, they banned music and cinemas, they disapproved of girls age and 10 going to school. They also accused, they were accused of various human rights violations and cultural abuses. So they are a group that's quite extremist from particular points of view. But it's also important to note that the, the Taliban is also a group that has received quite a, a great amount of support within Afghanistan from particular sections. So they are anti-Western, they're more about Sharia law, and they don't really allow much room for human rights. And I think that's where the problem is for most people, they don't really allow for human rights, especially girls and women, in terms of going to school, being able to get a job, and all those things, which for us in democracies are part of normal life. So in essence, that's who the Taliban would be. But obviously, there's quite a number of links now. If you try to look at the structures I showed you earlier on, number of links to other countries and the governments and other organizations as well that are defined as terrorist groups such as ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And as such, the return of the Taliban now marks then a number of worries about then the, the return of Al-Qaeda, the return of ISIS or the rise of ISIS and what this means for safety in the West. So that's what the Taliban is. And that's the, the, the guys that are coming into power. Would probably like to add something to that, something that I've probably missed that's important regarding who the Taliban is. So in terms of, I just wanted to add, I mean, you, you kind of glossed over everything and that was very good, well encompassed there. Um, but it's also important to note that before the Taliban government was overthrown and uh, replaced by Hamad Kazai in 2001, they had almost 90% of the public uh, control of the territory. And that number has actually risen up to like 98% now, now that they've, got, um, they've taken power again. So it was quite quick. And I think what, 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 what has put um, the Taliban back in power and the reason they've gained so much territory, and it's something that uh, the media athletes don't really touch on is that, Afghanis and most people in general, they they don't want to be controlled by a puff, a foreign puppet, you know, uh, somebody. And that that's ultimately what the Afghani government that the Americans tried to prop up was. It was very much a pro-America kind of thing, and it shared this Western values. And obviously, you know that um, the uh, the Afghanis and so forth. Are, uh, most uh, Middle Eastern people, they like their cultures, their traditions, and so forth. They believe in a certain way, and so, so forth. I mean, that's how they've been living for years, and that's eventually how they intend to live for another 100 years. So yeah. it's almost pure ignorance to just assume that they'd, like, change their whole cultures because the West has said they should, you know. Um, so, you know, I, I think that that's also something that 
gets glossed over. You know, there was a puppet government in place and they didn't have the support of um, the majority, you know. We, and this is do, this was almost doomed to fail because, I mean, if you look at history, throughout history, I mean, look at uh, in Rwanda, for example, right, the um, colonial powers, I think it was Belgian, correct, if I'm not correct, they popped up mm. the Tutus uh, when uh, Tutsis uh, instead of the Hutus with the majority, you know, they didn't make, they favored one uh, ethnic group over another. And, you know, it's a whole nother kettle of worm whether you look at um, the different sects of Islam within it. I mean, you have the Shiites, the, the Sunnis and so forth. So that's a whole new kettle of fish in its own. But, I mean, we've learned it ourselves here in South Africa, you know. If you don't give each tribal group or somebody some kind of representation, then, you know, it's all going to go fail. So, I mean, for example we saw with the Zulus, you know, if the Zulus are out of power in South Africa, then obviously they're going to feel, you know, a bit hurt and that's going to cause unrest. So I think, you know, to be a successful, diverse country, you need to represent each and every person, you know, you need to have somebody from every tribe and so forth. And I think that's, that's one of the big issues that the West kind of glossed over and they... Uh, didn't really look at then um another point that i just want to reaffirm you know there is this worry that oh no what's going to happen now in the wake of the u.s and nato withdrawal and so forth and one Mm. of the stipulations that like i think donald trump tried to push forward um and that's been in talks is that taliban can't harbor terrorists and they've said so you know and they've also said that this is going to this is going to be the taliban of old this is going to be taliban light you know like pepsi light this is going to be <laughs> taliban light um so you know you take that for what you will maybe yeah. people don't trust them because they they've had this massive history but they've said they won't harbor terrorists so uh, the proof is in the pudding i guess um but it, there has been examples where there's still sex of al-qaeda in Afghanistan and the Taliban have actually fought them, right? And they've been waging wars against them. The same with um, these infighting between Al Qaeda and ISIS, and they've actually fought them. So yeah. these three groups don't really like each other. The Taliban's don't like the uh, Al Qaeda or ISIS, right? Um, so the the I mean, if that makes any evidence or proof that maybe they won't tolerate this, fair enough, I guess. But they also don't have the infrastructure to kind of man the whole country you know um so be that as it may i guess um yeah look i'd just like to quickly piggyback on that point just made now regarding the taliban's links to isis and al-qaeda because now as i said earlier before your concerns about what could possibly happen next now that the taliban is back in power and as it was previously shown and said a number of times before that the country of Afghanistan served, served as a sanctuary for many of these terrorist groups and parts of Pakistan as well. And we've also seen a number of players within that region as well, serving as kind of saviors towards the Taliban, allowing them to have money, allowing them to sell their goods and services, allowing them to actually be propped up and actually survive and thrive. So now there's a concern about what happens next then for the West, especially because if you look at it, NATO, the US, parts of Canada as well, Australia as well, those countries have spent the last 20 years or or so in Afghanistan 
and then their concerns now about what possibly happens next in ter with regarding terrorism. But we've also seen the Taliban come out and say, we are doing kind of a blanket approach whereby everyone is forgiven. We won't be killing anyone or putting anyone to jail, whatever the case might be. But then reports on the ground are contrary to what we've seen before, seen or heard here, the, the Taliban say, and also as all well, they said, people can leave the country as they wish. But then reports are claiming that the Taliban has taken over three gates at the airport. So it's it's quite a number of things happening, right? So in your case, right, from where you stand right now as someone who's gone through the work, someone who's got the undergrad to show for it, <laughs> do you think there's a, a new threat in terms of the Taliban and terrorism for the West and Australia as well? Do you think there's a new threat that they should be worried about? So that was that was that was a like a, a very loaded question, you know. Um are we the question is first or the statement rather is um are we going to let the Taliban actually rule for a little bit and see how they do, or are we just going to be presumptuous and just take it from there, you know? Because you know. people, you know, would you rather be reactive? or uh, proactive you know um, yeah and, and the, that's going to be the defining feature here you know um sleepy joe has come out and said that they're going to avenge the deaths of all the uh, of the soldiers that they lost and so forth and is that going to open up a whole new kettle of worms are they going to bomb the infrastructure now the helicopters that the taliban have just acquired and i saw a very interesting uh point and I, i'm going to share the the graphic shortly but the Taliban, you know, I don't know if the Americans were sleeping or whatnot, but you, you should see the munitions and the artillery and everything that um, the Americans and the Allies left behind, you know. We're talking yeah. tanks, uh, armored Humvees, you know, um, four by fours, thousands of rifles, cash, cash and so forth. And that kind of leads to the question as to, like, should we be wary of them? Because, you know... The, the, um, the reports are saying that, you know, this is the first terrorist organization that has an Air Force. And, you know, it's funny, but it's kind of true. However, the military experts are saying that it doesn't really mean much because the Taliban doesn't know how to fly airplanes. And so the, there's a presumptuous presumption that um, they're going to force the African, the Afghani um, uh, aviators to fly. Uh, by mm. pressuring the families but you know everything breaks down so once the planes stop working you know the, the, every, there's always maintenance on these kind kinds of um, yeah. aviation items so uh, they, there's a fear that it's not really a big deal in terms of the the aviation wings right i mean it's easy to shoot a gun and you fix a gun and so forth but like planes and like these rockets and these bombers and so forth the tech you need you, you need technical expertise and um so th there's no real fear in that you know um and people have said that uh, the americans have kind of re removed pivotal pieces from these planes and so forth so they can fly but i don't think they can shoot and so forth so like these are going to be a way into so the, there is no real worry in that regard but there is a worry that with the amount of munitions and artillery left behind that that's going to find its way onto the black market and it's going to be sent to all kinds of insurgencies around the world and that's one of the biggest fears right but in yeah. term in terms of actual threat i think that the this is my 
uh, opinion, right? The Taliban is in power now, and I think they want to kind of live it up. You know, they want to enjoy what they've been fighting for for twenty years. So I don't yeah. think I, I don't think that they're going to want to you know st uh, start harboring terrorists again because you know they saw it done. So history can repeat itself. So I think for maybe five years or so, like we'll see them. Just you know, we don't know what Taliban life is going to be like, but I don't think they're going to be pressuring other states or harboring terrorists that think, you know as if the if Bob goes to Bob who lives in uh, the Afghani mountains bombs uh, Pakistan they'll they'll be like this Bob take him you know that kind of thing I don't think uh, there's going to be much resistance because people are tired of war you know it's it's just not it's not just the Americans who are tired of war it's not just NATO the Europeans the Afghani people are tired you know they've yeah. been at war since before they were born you know they're born with an AK in their hand. So I think that people are tired and so I, you know, this is all hearsay and so forth, but if the, you know, it's going to be tit for tat right now, if the U.S. responds yeah. to too heavy, you know, obviously they have to do, you know, with Soleimani, um, the uh, Iranians responded by bombing like poor infrastructure of the Americans and like, it was just like to save face. So I think Sleepy Joe will save face. But I don't think it'll be pivotal infrastructure. Um, and I think if he does damage pivotal infrastructure, then the Taliban are going to be forced to respond because they can't obviously be seen as a pushover. Um, because there are so many, you know, if they, the Taliban get seen as a pushover, then Al Qaeda or ISIS, uh, it's like a domino effect, you know. If the Taliban exactly, don't, yeah. um, aren't strong um, and have a united front, right? then the Taliban, the Al-Qaeda and ISIS and all these other radical groups will take advantage and be like, hey, there's a state with weapons now, guns, let's just take them over. So there has to be a united front. Um, and I hope the brains trust. And I think the brains trust in the Taliban will be like, hey, let's back down. However, you see the, the backlash that uh, the Americans are getting right now. And I don't know if you want to touch on that now or maybe later in the show, but uh, yeah. uh, the the actual people that have served in Afghanistan and all these Americans and vets, you know, I follow a couple of guys on social media and they've purchased tickets themselves and flew out to go rescue all these Afghani interpreters and all these people that actually helped them when they were fighting these wars. And I yeah. think, you know, you, there was one thing that I wanted to touch on that when you're talking about how uh, Taliban said that they won't uh, they won't stop people from leaving but these uh, uh, like a brain drain you know and they won't let yeah. all the top doctors and all these like uh, people leave because in what kind of state will they have you know exactly uh, so I think you know that's within reason like maybe they'll let the kids go but I don't think they'll let like all the fight male age fighting males or like doctors and engineers, they won't let them leave, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's kind of what I've been uh, looking at because everybody said, hey, they'll take in people. And I found it very interesting that on the list of people who are accepting Afghani um, refugees, America's only 20, 22nd on that list. Everybody else is mm. accepting them like left, right, and center. So, um, yeah. I, I found that very interesting, man. Yeah, but look, I 
there's, there's quite a number of elements when you come to looking at the, the Taliban bill. Before we move on, right, you spoke of a graphic that shows what was left behind yeah, yeah, by yeah. the US and allies. And I'd like us to quickly look at that graphic, yeah. if you have it up, so we yeah, can kind I of haven't. see what was left behind and where the Taliban stands in terms of armory and the hordes of cash that are left behind. I'm sure they're all billionaires by now. Yeah, so as you can see, <laughs> 43 MD, uh, MD 530 helicopters, 33 uh, AC 208 planes, uh, 33 Blackhawks, um, 23 uh, 29 light attack planes, um, 32 M17 helicopters, and three Hercules, you know. Um, and these, this is kind of where they're all situated, right? And that's mm. just in terms of wh where they're allocated. We've got at least 3,000 uh, 3,012 Humvees that the, the Taliban has, has inherited. <laughs> I mean, uh, so you're looking at uh, more than 4,000 M4 carbines. Uh, four, um, you've got 31 mobile strike force vehicles. <laughs> it's, it's crazy, you know. Um, and that's just a few of it. Uh, I couldn't find that cash graphic. Um, that you wanted me to show um, yeah no that's fine that's fine man that's fine but, but I think people get the picture so what was left behind yeah, and that that's just you know a tip of the iceberg because you need to realize that for example the US has been su supplying the Afghani national army with uh, weapons and so forth so they've still got that stockpiles there's still thousands of like hand grenades uh, thousands of other not just this uh, graphic of weapons left yeah. behind, these entire armories that were left, and this, you know, this this poses the question, you know, um, uh, while uh, before we go into your next point, right? Yeah, is this very in interesting documentary on YouTube uh, by DW Documentary, um, and mm. it is called the Million Dollar Base, right? Uh, Camp Bastion, right? And so, you know, we've been talking about, the U.S. has always been talking about withdrawing from Afghanistan, when it was going to end, and so forth, and when it was going to end. And the, the, this comes stems from Obama's administration already, they were going to withdraw, right? So if withdrawal was on the cards, right, from that long, why are we leaving so many munitions and armories behind if this is actually what you're worried about, you know? Why is it a last-minute thing? And you can't tell me that all the Americans left there and all the allies were all essential workers. No, there were some non-essential people there. You can't have like, what's it, 50,000 essential workers. No, it's fucking probably like 5,000 or 10,000. Um, and th there was no long-term thinking. And I find this very interesting because this documentary, uh, this million dollar base by DW Documentaries looks at Camp Bastion, right? And the Camp Bastion was this million dollar, ba billion dollar base set over like eight hectares. There was a, a um, there was an airport, there was a hospital, there was massive cafeterias and everything. And basically they, the British disassembled every nut and bolt and they shipped all of that shit back, right? I'm telling that also uh, um, when you uh, change salt, salt water into drinking water, what's the desalination desalination plant yeah yeah they had a desalination plant they, that they that was it took i think it took three billion to set it up and they took that mm. entire thing down and they literally every nut and bolt was accounted for and taken back and they just left the bunk beds they literally left the afghanis the 
towers around the, the base, right? Mm-hmm. They left some bug beds and a couple of TVs, like just basic stuff, like kitchen appliances and stuff, so forth. But they took everything important. And they stri- started stripping in 2015. So, you know, if you just contrast that, that kind of approach to what we're seeing now with Americans, and, you know, it kind of leads leads me to think that, you know, this isn't, you know, as much as we might put this on Sleepy Joe and so forth, you know, because they said yeah. that that whole dismantling process took two, three years, right? So you need yeah. to look at the strategic vision, right? Obama yeah, had to, yeah. Obama had to be like, okay, let's start dismantling our stuff. You know, he had exactly. to get the, the ball rolling so that Trump yeah. could get the ball rolling to withdraw. You can't, Biden's been in office for, what's it, six, seven months, maybe? Seven months, some in that region, seven months. Seven months and some change. So he couldn't have started yeah. this whole dismantling process if there's, you know, um, if we departing the due date is the 11th uh, of September, right? Yeah. That's the due date that he has to be out. So you couldn't say fucking in January, hey, especially with COVID, um, the ball game's changed. Exactly. But he couldn't say, hey, this is how we need to dismantle. And I urge everybody to go watch the documentary, Billion Dollar Base, a DW documentary. And it shows you how they, everything you start, they're packing up. Everything gets packed up. You know, like the, the um, they just left her empty hangers and everything. It was just, they scraped it. And this was filmed in 2016. So it just shows you the foresight by some nations, right? And obviously mm. what the British did in that regard was they left the cafeteria for last because obviously the troops still need to, <laughs> the, the yeah. troops still need to eat and so forth. But the armed yeah. guards around that. And then everything went down to the non-essentials. I mean, they had a plant, right? A recycling plant, right? And every phone phone laptop that wasn't needed they destroyed that like a whole unit where they just destroyed stuff everything was taken apart scrap metal was put aside they literally destroyed everything and they had a whole recycling plant you know as much as we talk about how in south africa we'd have a recycling ministry where we make money out of it that's what the british did so you know it's almost foolhardy to say you know why didn't we do this when our ally, the America's allies had the foresight to do this. Um, so, yeah, I, I just found that very interesting in terms of that graphic because everybody's going to put this in the Biden administration mm. and the Republicans are saying, fuck, the, he needs to be um, removed as commander chief. And maybe so because he's fucking slow, but it's <laughs> hard to say that the buck ends, you know, he destroyed Afghanistan in the withdrawal because... It's been in the works, you know, the original agreement wasn't. And, you know, that kind of, that, it's so rare to see, like, a continuity plan, you know. You look at the Europeans, they yeah. love having a continuity plan. So, you, I give you a, a report, and this is what I did in my uh, administration, and then you build on that. But with Obama, Trump destroyed everything, like, you didn't want... He tried to erase the memory of Obama so that he could start fresh. There's no continuity plan. I mean, you see it in South African politics as well. You know, uh, Jacob Zuma, then you have Cyril Ramaphosa, two different mindsets. Tabum Beki to Jacob Zuma, two different mindsets. Nelson Mandela to, they, were, they weren't building on each other's legacies. And that's ultimately what's resulted 
in the failures that we see in South Africa because there was no continuity plan. And this continuity plan, like Bush started this, this whole debacle, and you'd have thought that Obama would have consulted with Bush and they would have had, oh, previous prime, uh, previous president's meeting, we'd be like, listen, I tried this. This is what we tried to do. Over. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and we're obviously going to touch onto it later. I feel like I've been talking for a while now. But each, <laughs> each, each had their own kind of vision for this, right? So Bush, for example, he wanted a fucking entire armies. It was just everybody being deployed, right? You're talking Marines, infantry, um, the Air Force, special forces, and so forth. Whereas Obama went, promised that you'd end the war, so he reduced the the infantry and the you know the grunts, you know the cannon fodder, and he just put special yeah. forces in. So from Obama's administration, from 2011 to when he was Obama in presidency till 2018, somewhere I don't really remember to be honest. <laughs> 2017. Doesn't it 2016? 2016, because yeah, yeah, then Trump would have been in power 2016, 17, yeah. 18. Yeah, yeah somewhere, so, yeah, 2016, I think. Yeah. So from when Obama came into presidency, oh, he started in 2009. Sorry, Obama started 2009, I think. Anyway, since he mm -hmm. came to power, it was just he had more of a special forces flavor. I mean, we saw with the SEAL Team 6 taking out Osama bin Laden and so forth. Um, he liked using the special forces. There were specialized troops, and it means that the morale wasn't affected. You know, if a seal dies, yeah, ah, bravery. But you know, if the regular Joe dies, then it kind of has that lasting impact because you're losing more grunts. You know, the cannon fodder, mm. that's the people, that's your constituency. So he kind of reduced that so that the public opinion wouldn't be too damaged, you know. And he vowed to reduce the troops, and that, that's ultimately what he did. With uh, with Trump, it was balls to the hall again, but obviously with drone strikes and so forth. And it's important to know that Obama was Mr. Drone Strike himself, you know, the most yeah. drone strikes uh, out of any, any presidency and bombing. So, um, yeah, you know, and I think this vision has just been lacking. Um, and that's ultimately what resulted in it because they didn't trust the Afghanis to empower themselves and that's ultimately i mean that's why the afghani national army left because how do you stay in power when every person on the corner wants to kill you i mean then yeah. it obviously means that you're not uh, supporting the the united vision of afghanistan and so forth yeah man you've, you've captured quite a number of points probably some of the points i wanted to make as well but look that's besides the points and that's the thing right oh there's a documentary i watched as well whereby the, the troops, the Afghani troops, also had this problem of not being able to take control of, of activities. And most of the times, the U.S. troops would be there that have to take control. So it's fair to say that when the U.S. troops started pulling out and there was no leadership in place, things are bound to fall apart. And that's, that's where the problem is. Most people, for the most people, the problem is not that the U.S. pulled out. It's how they pulled out the timing. And as you said... About two, three years ago, some countries started pulling out, deconstructing the infrastructure, taking things back home, trying to take as much as they possibly can. Whatever could possibly prove face will be taken back and away from the war zone. But now that's where the problem is, right? Because you spoke about the importance of infrastructure as well, because now some factions in the U.S. are saying that the U.S. must go back 
and bomb all the bases, bomb all the ports, the key roads. It's going to be a pro It's not so easy anymore because now you're starting from scratch again because you're going to have to bring in the troops, they know you're coming in, they're going to plan ahead, they have the guns, they have the planes, they have the money, and they have the backing of other countries as well that might possibly send in troops, put them in Taliban clothing, they're properly trained, they've got experience, and they can fight the US, and that's the thing. The US has made quite a number of enemies in Asia, specifically Middle East and, and Asia as well, Far East Asia. And some countries are explicit about it. Some countries in the Middle East are blatantly saying we hate the US. Some countries are choosing to be a bit discreet for trading purposes and whatnot. But the, the, the point is, there's quite a number of countries that want to see the US fall. And that's why then you see that there's speculation of China, of Russia and Pakistan partnering up with the Taliban to help them establish a government that works. Some reports are claiming that within Afghanistan, the only embassy to be harmed and damaged was that of the US, but that of Russia and China remains intact and in place. So that in itself paints the picture of the factionalism between the countries. And remember, all these countries sit on the UN Council. So now if you have China and Russia partnering with the so-called terrorist group and the US and allies saying these people are, are terrorists and the enemies, then what happens next within the UN Council itself? Because now this... Taliban thing can easily devolve into the, the UN Security Council. I just want to touch on a point that you, you made sort of point, uh, clear there, you know, uh, how the Russia and China um, will, will embassies weren't harmed. And, you know, I, I was listening to this podcast and in his book, uh, Yuan Rath, he's an ex-South mm -hmm. African Special Forces who did a lot of contracting work in Iraq and Afghanistan. And he told me that, like, well, he stated that, like, the indigenous forces, Afghanis, the Iraqis, and so forth, they love anybody that's not part of the actual invasion team. So, like, they're not Americans, they're not British um, and French. So, like, they love the South Africans, they love the Chinese, they love the Fijians and Samoans because they don't see them as the invaders and the conquerors. Um, yeah. and, and that's kind of the attitude, you know, if you've been killing the people for so long, obviously they're going to say, fuck you, you know, we'll bomb your mm. place, you know, uh, whereas if Queens was there, if South Africa, they, uh, South Africa was, what did you guys do? Were you here, you know? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so th uh, that's also uh, something that like gets glossed over, you know? I mean, that's why we've, we've seen these reports why the Germans were able to escort South Africans out freely. The Polish were yeah. able to, because they weren't the main, they were there, but I mean, they were, you know, quietly doing not the stuff. instigators as such. They're not the instigators, right? So, yeah. you know, we, we, there's pictures and videos of how the Dutch uh, special forces were there escorting their people out, the Polish, all these other Europeans, the Australians were there, the New Zealanders, mm. and you know, they were able to do the work because they weren't the main instigators. And I think that's something that, you know, the Americans are still like so shocked. Oh, shit, Afghanis hate us. Well, no shit, you fucking bombed them, you know? Do you think the Iraqis like, you know, you know? And, Come on. And, yeah. Exactly. I mean, do you think the Vietnamese are still like, you know, they don't because you killed so many, you know? So I, I, it's almost like there's this switch, like this, uh, the savior complex that they have where they're like, oh, but why do you hate us, you know? Yeah. So I, I, and it's those scars, because the country's got so many scars, you know, and there isn't that healing, and obviously they're going to be upset about this and that, you know?
Yeah, and that's exactly the point, man. And I think with the presence of of President Joe Biden, let's call the man by the name, let's call, let's call him Sippy Cup or Sleepy Joe or Beijing Biden, all the names he has, let's call him President Joe Biden. And with the presence of Joe, the weakness is now hi- highlighted. You can see now there's a focus on a number of issues that are considered non-issues by some people within the right wing. Some issues like gender and other factors as well, critical race theory and all these things. There are problems, yes, but some people believe they're not an immediate problem to look at. I remember at one point, Joe visited a, an army base in the US and was speaking to them and he said, he spoke to one of the generals, one of the high commanders of the army, and he asked him, what is the main threat for the U.S. army and the U.S. people? And the general told him it's it's global warming. So with, that, with the man who has that kind of thinking, we can only expect, we can only expect for him to pull out in the way he did from Afghanistan. And I think yeah, it's very important at this point in time to look at the kind of cost, the human cost and the monetary cost that came with the occupation of Afghanistan. So I've got something here that highlights the estimates. There are these estimates, but it's not the exact number. These estimates, not the exact number of the number of lives lost. And you'll be astonished. Let's give this a look, the human cost. So American service members killed in Afghanistan, 2,448. US contractors, 3,846. Afghani national military and police, 66,000. NATO and allies, 1,144. Afghan civilians, 47,245. Taliban and opposition fighters, 51,191. Aid workers, 444. And journalists, 72. So now we can imagine these numbers have obviously risen now with takeover the Taliban. A number of people have been killed recently. So these numbers have definitely had a bit of a rise. Yeah, man, what's up? I just want to ask you a question, right? Yeah. So you know, we know our Geneva Convention, the UN Charter Article. I think it's two verse thing. Isn't there a, a byline? It's in bold, proportionality. Mm. Yeah. So you know, let's the just, principle of proportionality. Yeah. Exactly the principle of proportionality. So in the, after nine eleven, the US was allowed to respond by international law, right? Mm. The US was allowed to self-defense they were allowed to attack but within the same proportion of 9-11 and the twin towers right so for example i I just want to you know if you can bring up how many people died in the twin tower attacks right so um if we can just contrast those two and i want to look at the proportionality of this you know um Mm. it should be an eye for an eye but i think this was just bomb and fucking kill them all you know um and, you know, the U.S. has always been one to kind of go overboard. I mean, Pearl Harbor, and then you have fucking a, a nuclear bombing. <laughs> uh, so, you know, they've always been one to punch way harder than they need to. And I think that, that you know, if it was a proportional attack, I think yeah. we, we wouldn't be in the place that we are at right now. I mean, they fucking just bombed the shit out of these guys initially then it would have been like oh okay that's done but it's the mission statement and just before we gloss over this right yeah. the military industrial complex was hard at work 
I mean, we, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole and talk about Iraq or so forth, but they were looking for weapons of mass destruction and they're still looking for those fucking weapons of mass destruction, mass destruction that Saddam Hussein had. And they still apparently, apparently you know. So, yeah. um, I mean, I sent you this article in a week where this former CIA deputy, he apologized to Colin Rath for lying to the UN. Like he thought that the information that there was weapons of mass destruction and he didn't. And Colin Powell said, listen, yeah, you ruined my reputation by me going to the UN and telling them all this cuck, you know? Um, so mm. if they're apologizing now, then, you know, how do, how must the Iraqis feel? Uh, exactly. no, nobody says, oh, After hey, the matter of. After the matter of, you know, so, yeah. And look, I've, I've managed to pull up the number of victims who died because of the 9-11 attacks. Now, it's key to note, right, of the deaths, this also includes terrorists as well, so it's not only Americans. So the number stands at about 2,177. That's the estimate. Obviously, you can't get the exact number of these kinds of things. But they state that 246 people died on the airlines that flew to the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and the field in Pennsylvania. The attack on the Pentagon claimed 125 lives. And the attacks on the World Trade Center claimed 2,606 lives. So let's take a round number of 3,000, right? About 3,000 people died in total, including the terrorists, the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, the Twin Towers, the whole thing. That's about 3,000 people in total. But now if you look at the number of people who've died in Afghanistan, the number of U.S. people alone, U.S. conflicts who've died alone is above 3,000 mark. The number of the Taliban that has died is 51,000 Pro proportionality. And, and you know, the those of proportionality, what's happening there? Because a quick one, right? It, this means that if it's in proportion, then it must be somewhere in the region of. Yeah. Not too high, a bit low, that's fine, but not too high than what was meted on you as the victim. Yeah. I mean, we'll give you a thousand over, but I mean, fuck, was it like 40, 50, 60,000 over? No, 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 no. And yeah, I, I think that's also, and it's these are um, cute numbers. These aren't the real numbers because we all know that Obama was going to sh show you how, how many innocent civilians he killed us. You know, they stopped counting numbers after that. Um, you know, not all bomb strikes. These are, uh, kind of cute numbers, you know. These aren't yeah. the real numbers. Uh, in my opinion, I strong with all the literature I've read and stuff, people I've spoken to, more. these numbers are fucking way higher. So, you know, the, and this is just numbers published by the US. You have to look at the British was there, exactly. the French was there, the Spanish was there, the Polish. The Dutch the europeans everybody was there so like what are their mm. numbers as well um, exactly and exactly the you know private military contractors are my bread and butter and they don't report private military contractor numbers because uh, they don't want to damage morale um mm. so that's also something that you need to look at um but yeah these are these numbers don't match up but it's just the, the law of proportionality and that's the by clause of the international law you know, that you ne it needs to be within the same proportion and threshold. Um, um, and I think there is a limitation on how long you can use that. I mean, there is an expiration date of how long you can be self-defense, you know. Um, mm. 
So I think that's also something very important to note. And yeah, and this, yeah, go for it, man, go for it. This is one thing. America didn't set itself up for success, right? And I spoke about a continuity plan, a strategic vision, and so forth, right? But you know, so they trained certain troops, but they didn't give them the training troop that they, the training that they needed, you know, right? Um, you know, the Green Berets, the American Green Berets, their whole functionality is to train the indigenous troops, right? So they'll teach them training mm. tactics and weapons and so forth, right? But it obviously comes at, you know, Ivan Barlow, the ex-guy of executive outcomes, a private military contractor, you know, he had a successful executive outcome set the standard for Bla uh, um, Blackwater and so forth, right? And he was saying that when you train indigenous troops, right, you have to be on their level, right? You can't have an area of superiority. The Americans obviously came in there with an area of superiority, right? You know, mm. when he said that when he trained the troops, right, these guys live in the exact same tent as the indigenous forces. They eat the exact same thing, right? You can't, yeah. and you teach them tactics with weapons that they have, right? So the Americans went in there teaching them tactics with drones and stuff like that. They don't have drones. So if you teach them tactics with drones, then uh, other fucker, you know, you, you teach them. Exactly, you teach them <laughs> with the AK-47. This is how you clear a building and stuff like that. But they didn't set themselves up for success. Right? Yeah. If you know that uh, this, you're obviously in an Islamic country. So, right, you need to know that the people pray on a Friday. So, how, how do you expect them to train on a Friday? The same goes with praying five day, times a day. If you don't welcome that and you're cognizant of that, then obviously you're not going, it's not going to work. You're not going to job. And I mean, if you eat pork in front of the people, obviously they're going to be upset. And there's various articles about Americans coming in that you don't pay attention to the cultures. You know, if you rip the jobs of women when you break into houses, obviously the masses are, are going to be upset. And I think that kind of understanding and the style of training was kind of at odds end. So they didn't really set themselves up for success, right? Obviously there was rarities and this is the exception, but the overall training plan of the Green Berets going in, right? There's many books that I've read about this, was that they went in there and the NA was just fucking useless, right? They didn't follow the, the way that the movement and so forth and so forth. But you need to understand, right? Afghanis and Asians are naturally smaller than most Westerners and South Africans and so forth, right? They're, like they've got a smaller bull. So they can't carry 80 kilograms that the US troops carry and so forth. Uh, you have to adapt your program to your style of teaching and training to them they can't adapt exactly. for you and i think that that kind of set the americans up for failure is another one because there was no vision of what are we going to do with these people i mean if they don't know how to drive a humvee then you know if they don't have the petrol for the humvee then it's pointless teaching them how to um, use smash yeah. and grabs with the Humvee, if they don't have those weapons, you know, I mean, they left all these airplanes, but how many Afghanis did you teach how to fly helicopters, you know, so it's, it's kind of that kind of thinking. Yeah, and I, I, I think that kind of point highlights that all this not on the shoulders of Sleepy Joe, yes, he was the one who pulled out, but then why did he pull out? Because he didn't just randomly say, hey, okay, folks, we're going to pull out. He, there was a pretext to that, right? And that was because President Trump had signed an agreement with the Taliban that I'm going to pull out by May. So Joe had two options, either to pull out, as promised initially by Trump, 
right? Or they could then go back in, send in more troops and try to clear more territory and then have the Americans in the Afghanistan for 20, 20, 30, 40 years into the future. So try to make a choice, either a pullout, which was the consensus among the, the government and the population as well. Most people wanted the end to these endless wars. Or he could go back in again and then lose popularity. So he had to then balance the two out. So what does he do then, right? Because now you have to then think where he was coming from as well as a man. So obviously in my case, if I yeah, and look, that's the thing, right? Because now as you're trying to discover new things, you might find that there are a bit of problems in there. But as I was just trying to say, the problem here is Joe had to make a choice, right? And all human, every day we make choices. Some we make them out of routine, don't even think about brushing your teeth, making a sandwich, driving a car. But some things you think about though, mm. when you write your thesis, when you yeah. when you talk to your partner, you try to make a proposition to your parents or a friend or trying to sway someone in a particular direction, you have to think critically about that to say, which words do I use or what actions do I take? And that's the thing Joy to do. Which words does he follow? Do I follow the words of pulling out or the words of going back in and then bringing in more troops and then being in, the, in, the, in Afghanistan for a couple of more years? And he had to make a choice. And most people are saying, yes, it was good for him to move out, which is what was the point initially, but then how did he move out? So now... <laughs> It's a bit of a rock and hard place, to be honest. He, was, he wasn't going to win. There was no winning in this. There's no winning because if you went back in, the Taliban then is going to go on the offense again yeah. in, in a way that has never been seen before. If he pulls out hastily, this happens. Yeah. So what is what is what is Joe to do then? That's the question. What is Joe to do? It's, to be, it's a difficult position. To be honest, I thought he was he thought he was gonna be president and then he was gonna die in the next two weeks and then it was just like ask a malicious problem, to be honest. Like exactly. general, I don't think like if he hadn't no everybody knew that listen, yeah, this year is going to be a make or break year. So you know, you almost wanted to say, hey, look, let Trump take this one and then you can I mean the Republicans are calling for blood. You've lost Almost, it's important to note that half of America was in Afghanistan and Iraq. Half of the people served and stuff like that. So obviously, you are going to piss almost half the country off by saying and more. Hey, exactly right <laughs> by like abandoning people. So like there was no winning in this situation, right? And I think especially now that they've been attacked again, he's stuck in hard rock and hard place because he promised that he would stop the endless wars, right? But if he goes mm -hmm. back now and does a U-turn, the allies aren't going to join him because you know what you the, you didn't plan, right? The British are like we dismantled and you didn't exactly. follow suit exactly. So exactly, yeah. You you know this is going to be uh, Iraq 2002 over again, circa 20, 2002 again, where the allies didn't go into Iraq. Was it Gulf War? One of the wars, right? The Gulf War where the US didn't have any allies to go in with him because it was unjust and you know it's hard to say how how he's going to there needs to be a response because the u.s has already kind of lost their footing at center stage but you know just by withdrawing the the manner in which they withdrew right has hurt them so badly you know china came out um, I know we're jumping topics far, but china came out and told taiwan you see what happens when you ally with the u.s 
I mean, sure. the balls and G to just come and be like, you see what happens when you're allied. And this is kind of sent a warning to all the allies. Like, oh, exactly. shit. Japan, I mean, India. Especially because Japan, they've got put self-defense units. They don't have an army, right? And they've always filed mm -hmm. under the U.S. security blanket. So, mm -hmm. for example, if something were to happen with Japan, can Japan actually say, hey, listen, yeah, we need your help, yeah, you know, that, that kind of collateral. There is so many agreements and so many people tied and invested into the American. So, you know, for example, in my mind, the French are sitting pretty comfortably because they, they have their nuclear weapons, they have a strong military and so forth, the Germans and so forth. The, these independent states, I mean, the Aussies and the New Zealanders, they're safe because they have their own strong military and stuff like that. They've done the investment, but Southeast Asian nations and all the, everybody that's so reliant on the US, this should be a warning to you. Like, did I get into bed with the wrong person? Because yeah. what, what can you say? If this is what they're going to do to the Afghanis that they've been fighting and serving with, it's going to be a haphazard leave and half the people clinging onto planes. I don't think the Japanese and Taiwanese are going to cling onto a plane and say, hey, help us out, you know? So it, it was the way, the manner in which, you know, you could have asked, hey, can we push back the deadline or let's just ramp up these dismantling processes. But to leave oh, yeah. between... To leave with your tail between your tails. I mean, having a lost gunfight at the airport. No, I mean, it was peace. Like the, the like the unrest has stopped in the last eight months or so because the Taliban knew, oh, shit, the Americans are leaving. So wh why fight them, you know? Um, yeah. There was a one or two skirmishes here and there, but like it's always been on the, like it's, there's been a massive decline. So to go and have one last battle firefight on the, at the airport, with like thousands of people clinging to the planes, the US just hurt themselves way more. You know, if you look at that whole event, the last two weeks, this has been free publicity for the Taliban and they should just be sitting back. They, sh they shouldn't even be at the airport. They should be sitting back with popcorn. I don't know if they eat popcorn, <laughs> but sitting back and just watching the shit show. Yeah. And that's the thing, man. It's, it's all about planning because I'm sure the Taliban would have been willing to renegotiate. And I think trying to push back the exit dates from Afghanistan would have allowed the creation of a balanced state whereby you have a government that's for the people with President Ghani in power, if that would have been the case, and then some sectors of society controlled by the Taliban, whatever that might have looked like. I'd say give them defense. They, they're allowed to carry their guns. They're on the ground. They like to do the fighting. So give them defense and let them be in charge of the defense ministry. Because that was the whole situation. Trump was trying to negotiate for a, a coalition government whereby there's part of it is the people and part of it is the Taliban. But now with this pullout, it became a takeover. And that's why then we find ourselves we are now. So I think what was wise to try and renegotiate the exit dates because as it is, people did support the, the leaving of Afghanistan by US troops because some reports state that over the past 18 months before the exit, no one had died from the US army. So that shows that the Taliban was willing to play ball if you sit down and talk to them like human mm. beings or the adults. Because as it stands, it, the amount of money spent is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Reports state that between 2010 and 2012, 
There are 100,000 soldiers stationed in Afghanistan, $10 billion a year. That's a whole lot of money. And a whole a range of other numbers as well. Some people say it's worth a trillion, it's a trillion dollar war. Some of the numbers don't include some of the bases out of outside of Afghanistan that are also used to try and then put the, the Taliban to rest and put them to bed. And all these problems come into effect because now what about the allies? What about the quad? Because mm. there's the, most countries don't have nuclear weapons because they believe that they fall within the umbrella of the US. But what happens now then in this case? Mm. So it's the effects, the reach, the implications of this particular exit are far reaching. And I don't think we can cover all of them right now because we don't have the kind of time on our hands. But I think maybe in future, once everything settles down and we see what kind of government the Taliban puts into power, we can then start to speak about the kind of threats that lie ahead for countries like Taiwan, countries like Japan. India countries that fall within the US nuclear umbrella because it's it's absolutely it's absolutely insane because now we have to start thinking about this. What does this mean again for the upcoming elections? If a Republican comes into power, will they go back again to show their power? Or what happens next? It's quite a number of things to consider. Yeah. What's up, man? I also want to just highlight a point, you know. Uh, Biden came out and he said he, he refused to take any blame for the mishaps. And I think that kind of ignorance and arrogance has also hurt him with the Republicans and many supporters in America because you, or sadly, whether it was your doing or not, you are the last line, the buck stops with you, right? That's and you, you had a handle on how things ended, right? You, you know... Biden's the president now, and this is how they kind of packed up. You know, they could have packed up way more or like you'd have deployed more Air Force or even asked your allies, hey, can you help us out? Can we all just lift our stuff out? And the manner in which and him being unwilling to accept responsibility for the fuckery that happened in the last two weeks is, I think, going to end his presidency. You know, he's very lucky that this didn't happen in his last year of office or something because then i thought think it would have been the nail in the coffin yeah and i think that that's another reason um you know you spoke about a coalition government and so forth um i don't know if you've read this book i'm gonna share my screen quickly um okay share this book um i'll put it out if you guys want me to send you the book i can it's License to Kill Hired Guns in the War on Terror by Robert Young Pelton, right? And he's a journalist that um, he's a journalist that went out to Iraq and he kind of looked at um, the situation, the numbers, the how many how money was being spent on private military contractors, how the US looted the treasuries and so forth. Um, can you still see this word document? Yeah, yeah, got yeah. you. you. Can scroll down a bit. Yeah. So, for example, right? I, all right. So, see, um, here, here we go. Right, Paul Bremer. Right. Uh, yes, the screen in, seems to be frozen right now. Let me stop sharing. Because I'm still on the. So sorry. Yeah, I'm gonna go like this. Right. Can you see my screen? Okay. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So Paul Bremer was an independent contractor coming into a position of power in. 
May 2003, and he had the supreme authority to make sweeping changes and radical reforms to post-Saddam Iraq. All right, uh, a seasoned uh, diplomat was hired as uh, a CEO of March Crisis Consulting, right? And he came in and he, right. so he pissed off the majority of Iraqis, right? Uh, he was viewed as a dictator squandering Iraqi oil revenue on corrupt and wasteful foreigners uh, from the same places where Saddam had squandered oil revenue. Uh, and, you know, he went in there with like this economic shock therapy and he basically used uh, the Iraq, uh, Iraqi uh, reserves as his own piggy bank, you know. Um, yeah. And what I found fascinating was in 2003, uh, Bush signed an executive order to confiscate all the Iraqi property uh, and give it to the United States, as well as the funds in America, take funds out of banks. The uh, people pool. Exactly. And it's crazy <laughs> how an executive outcome in America has the right on a sovereign nation, how you can just take the property. War doesn't allow for that. The Geneva Convention doesn't allow for that. And that's, I don't know how people gloss over the fact that executive outcome is domestic law. It's not, exactly. it's not international law. So I find that very interesting because just imagine Xi uh, declares like a executive order. Nobody's going to accept that because it's Chinese law. It's not, international law he actually has there's this new chinese law that came out i think towards the end of last year the beginning of this year that covers a number of things such as like insulting the states the national anthem insults insulting insulting online and all those things and it does state that if even if i myself a south african was was to insult xi if i go to china to be arrested for those actions so we actually see that those kinds of laws come into effect <laughs> across the world that's why then you find that most americans are not keen to go to china because as soon as they land and they've insulted china online then they're bound to be arrested then that's kind of thinking is kind of stupid to be honest because your laws are domestic not international you're not the un even the un doesn't have power over sovereigns so mm. it's kind of stupid thinking and here's something I want to, I mean, Bremer came in and issued Order 1, which began with the debathification of Iraq society. So but the Ba'ath Party was about Saddam's party, right? And this banned yeah. all party members from many positions of authority and responsibility in Iraqi society, effectively ostracizing 10% of the Iraqi population between 1.5 and 2.5 million. They also disbanded the Iraqi army and several Iraqi ministries, essentially cutting off employment and income for over 400,000 Iraqis. These two orders essentially created a pool of unemployed potential foot soldiers or suicide bombers for the permanent of uh, occupation. Yeah? And this is the kind of the ideas and the vision that um, America went into the Middle East with. And obviously if you, and they definitely use this tactics in Afghanistan. And this is what we see, you know. Um, this is a problem that we see because there's no vision. And this kind of harmful thinking was, uh, is actually what set them up for the reason that then, you know, yeah, this is both party assets and businesses were seized. 100% of, of foreign ownership and repatriation of profits were allowed. 40-year contracts intended to ensure that any ventures created under U.S. occupation would endure. 
the banking system was privatized. A flat tax of 15% was created. Exes and duties were polished. All of these orders were issued in English with the Arab with the Arabic translation lagging behind, underscoring the growing impression that the American occupier was taking control of the country for its own selfish purposes. That's colonization. All of it is, that's colonization, straight up. Exactly. And this is kind of the attitude that's actually set up America for failure. If they had gone in there with a bit of humble pie and the cognizance that, okay, we're here to for all, but I mean, we're going to treat these people with due respect. We're going to leave it as yeah. we kind of left it. But I mean, you look at this, these pictures, I don't know if you want to bring it up, of Afghanistan in the 70s, how it was lively, and now you just see the fucking bomb cities. There's a, if you go and image Afghanistan before and Afghanistan after, there's a huge correlation and difference between the two. Um, and the thing is, man, let's, let's call a spade a spade, right? If I was to come to your house, say I was paying you a visit, I'd have to ask you where, where I must find certain things, how I can do certain things because it's your house. I can't just walk in and assume I know where this is, where that is. You know your house best. So if you want to come into my house, you have to go through me first and say, hey, where can I find this? Where can I find that? As opposed to just walking in and thinking that you know everything. It doesn't work like that. It yeah. doesn't work like that. That's That's not sustainable. And look, this, this problem of American occupation has persevered and persisted for quite a number of time. We've spoken about a number of countries that have been paid a visit by the US and most of them, most of them, if not all of them, have not been left in a better state. And when you look in retrospect, you find that more people say, ah, it wasn't worth it. What we went for there wasn't actually there. So then why keep going there if you keep failing and going for things that weren't actually there? It's, it's just a pure insanity to me. So I've, I've got a bunch of photos here that I've pulled up on my browser. I'm not sure if these are the photos you're speaking of. You can tell me if I'm wrong, right? And then you can pull up the ones that you believe are correct. Let me try to share my screen right now. So let's do this. This is the screen I'm looking to share. And then let's share that screen. Tell me if you can see that, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got that, right? Yeah, so... Yeah. It's it's a it's a bunch of pictures that draw comparisons before and after. Let's see what's here. So here, complete ruin. <laughs> complete mm. ruin. If you have a look at that, let's see you the source, but that's Syria though. But that also highlights the points as well though. So let's quickly close that. Okay, astonishing pictures. Oh come on. Hey, Afghanistan nineteen sixty seven to uh... Yeah. But if you, if you look at these pictures, right, and you can take a look at this one here, for instance, let's pull that up. Okay, that is pre-Taliban, I find it's a pretty good place. You, you can tell that there was some sort of a good life. There you go, mm. kids playing in the yeah. park. I yeah. doubt they can today. You can tell the number of cars on the road, people had cars, not just mm. Humvees only. Yeah. Let's take a look at this, go side by side here. Let's see if we can pull that up. Okay, so yeah, there you go. Afghanistan, 1969. Lady there, 2013. Come on, man. The, uh, Come the, on. The proof is there. It captures the point quite well. Yeah. The writing is on the wall. And so, I think it, it, we've come to a time where, to, to break it, we've come to a time where we have to actually ask questions mm. of the US and say, 
why do you guys keep doing this? What's yeah. in it for you? Yeah, yeah. Ask the deeper questions. Why, what's the point of you trying to invade the Middle East so much? Why, what's the actual point? You wanted to make a point. There's just one thing, you know, we look at what started World War II. It was reparations for war, you know, the Treaty of Versailles and so forth. Yeah. Um, and the Germans had to pay reparations, right? So where are these reparations? Because the reparations were used to rebuild, you know, France asked for reparations. They asked for a lot because they were bombed to ship. And that those reparations allowed for rebuilding. So almost you've got to ask the question, where were the reparations? And I sent you a documentary in the week, right? Mm. Where um, they asked, you know, they just looked at the state of roads in Afghanistan. And, you know, look, roads, are, we, we are supposed to be a developed country and we struggle with potholes. So like we'll allow the potholes, <laughs> but, you know, you look at the infrastructure that was meant to be built, you know, they did stupid projects and they built hospitals where they didn't need there wasn't a need for hospitals they built schools where there wasn't a need for schools you know they didn't build the infrastructure that you know it was almost like oh let's just waste money corruption and say this is your reparation payments but there wasn't actual you know physical proper development you know we didn't see the development that the americans and the allies promised and i think that's something that gets glossed over because what exactly Afghanistan wasn't a win and they've drawn correlations to how the US is departing with that of you know in Vietnam when they when they departed of the embassy with helicopters uh, just as uh, Vietnam Saigon got taken over they didn't win Vietnam and they didn't win Afghanistan so what was the whole purpose of it right the Taliban is still there even after they try to defeat the Taliban, the place is just in worse shape. So you've got to ask the question, how do you see this as a win? And what did you actually bring to Afghanistan besides death and more radicalization? Because the end, uh, the, I was about to say the NC. But, um, the, <laughs> You're always there with the problems. You're always there with the yeah, problems. Yeah, exactly. The NC fucking <laughs> created the Taliban. Um, but... The, you know, you've, you've got to ask, the, the U.S. has to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, they recruited a lot and they radicalized a lot of people, you know, all the drone strikes that they did. If you, they killed the brother here, then obviously his brother's going to be pissed and he's going to go join the fight against you. The U.S. was one of the biggest recruiting tools, you know, as much as they did bad shit, badass shit and killed Afghanis and Taliban on one side. They recruited more, uh, you know, and I, that kind of, just imagine that to fight against um, Russia or India, everybody's related. Just imagine you kill one Indian. There's what, how, hey. many, uh, how many people's in <laughs> India? It's like fucking one billion. Like it's a conveyor, <laughs> but that you'll never beat. So uh, exactly. So I think that kind of logic was, especially when you think about how important in Afghani and the Middle East, bloodlines are so important right and blood mm. packs and everything is about the family they've got that whole old school mentality you know you have 10 12 kids right so mm. if you kill his one son his other fucking 10 brothers are going to be pistol wars and they're going to come for and i think that that gets glossed over we the u.s went and the west went in there 
with the things they didn't learn from the mistakes that Russia made or the British. Uh, but yeah, th that's kind of my opinion on this. And like you said, maybe we need to have a part two on this because obviously let's Probably. just let, let's just see how this how the first couple of weeks of leadership and governance is. Yeah, look, man, it's it's kind of hard to talk about the U.S. and its occupations in the Middle East without mentioning other countries and other groups as well because. All these things are related. They are linked together and it's hard to, to talk about one in isolation. And that is, that's in part to why we've gone this way and that way and that way and that way. But we, the hope is everyone gets the point that one, the US kind of broke all laws, international laws of war when it came to its occupying Afghanistan. You can look at the Geneva Convention from start to finish and see the number of laws they've broken. I'm not a lawyer, I don't know the law that well, but I'm quite certain they've broken quite a number of laws of the Geneva Convention. The second thing is, it's the savior complex of the US can do no wrong, and wherever they go, they're allowed to do as they please. I see the sun is coming in, and so I'm going to start slowly taking away my skin and my face, because now you look at that, but that's besides the point. But another thing is, it's that savior complex of coming in, with the superiority superiority complex as well of saying I know best I leave my pork in front of you and I'll tell you what to do just do as I say and that in itself creates a vacuum for leadership because when you pull out then there's no one left to fill the void above that we've seen the U.S. make enemies in Asia largely they've made quite a number of enemies in Asia in Asia and that in itself puts them in a bad position right fourthly it's this thing of playing politics. Bush does his own thing. Obama comes in with his own thing. Trump comes in. Biden, etc., etc. So this failure to have a plan of succession also then plays a pivotal part in trying to pull out successfully. Because if you look at other countries that dismantled beforehand, even during transition, they were still able to maintain the pullout. And I think it's maybe, maybe this might raise the question of having the military be separate from the state just as we had the church removed from the state, it might raise the question of saying the military must decide what is best based on what's happening on the ground as opposed to someone's in Washington in, in their pajamas with Kim David. And above that, it's a matter of working with the allies as well, because now the allies might want to stay or they're not done packing, and you say I'm moving out next week. So what does this mean then for other countries that depend on your umbrella? of nuclear weapons or supports in case of attack. So there are all these, these prongs that come into play. And if you look at one prong, you're gonna be pulled in one direction, start looking at Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan and what in Pakistan, whatever the case might be, look at this, then you pulled into NATO, you pulled into Canada, Australia, and whatever the case might be, the Quad. So it's really hard to put a pin on, say, a pin on things and say, this is a matter of facts, cause all facts, have other matters that are related to them, right? But we've said a lot, we've done a lot, and I'd like us to kind of put this in the bow, not unless you'd like to capture something else before I try and present the bow. Are you okay for the bow? No. I'm Great stuff. Good. So the first thing I'd like us to, to kind of look at before we, we wrap this up, right? Was it ever possible to neutralize the Taliban? It's a simple yes or no question, and why? You can give me two or three lines, nothing much. Was it even possible to neutralize the Taliban? Yes. Why? No. Why? No, because they went in with the wrong approach. The, the vision yeah. was all wrong. This had to be a, list, and a holistic war. 
you know you had to mm-hmm. you had to go in there with a the purpose right if the purpose was to punish them for harboring osama then mm-hmm. they needed to go in get osama and punish the people that let him stay in the house right that mm-hmm. that's that's kind of the proportionality you know um and yeah. i think that by sticking around for so long it kind of there was no way they were winning after the first two years that they were in there's no winning the war because it just kept on train coming and there was no continuity plan you know yeah this this book I, i told you about this book the american sparta right um yeah. the um the trial of uh and betrayal of major jim gant so he was a green beret and I'm just going to give you the headline quick summary and he got mm-hmm. he said he they said he was going on a mission and he went to go live with the tribal the tribal people in thing and he unified them right he unified them and slowly he started building a bigger pocket and pocket and then eventually he controlled a large stretch of land working with the people he lived with them you know he um lived in a hut next to them and he, you know there was no superiority complex he worked just fine with them right and that's how he, he mm-hmm. developed right he was a green beret and so forth and towards the end of his tenure because he he decided to give up he decided to live there actually and you know the america said that he went rogue and so forth but he started living he even brought his wife over and they lived in the mountains with these people and the mm-hmm. vision was that they were going to unify all the tribes together to actually have a unified afghanistan right and then obama came to era and then the money started getting scrapped and he couldn't continue to form and train these troops these tribal groups yeah. that actually make up the large majority of afghanistan of afghanistan right and this failure to actually come up with a vision and just like so he was actually left behind enemy lines and he had to fend for himself and that kind of you know if you tell the people to unite and fight for a cause and then you leave them hanging obviously they're going to be like why the fuck you know we risked What's our lives point? exactly and a lot of them they, they they fought the taliban and stuff like that all these tribal people they they've been fighting with them and showing them that they were with americans and so forth so they put this themselves on the line and then they just you know one second the funding was cut and they were left out to hang and that dry and die and that was the and that happened to hundreds and thousands of afghanis they were left out to dry by the us so you know that this whole approach of fighting the war was wrong and they didn't learn from it that's why i say two years in if they weren't out then there was no way winning that war you know um yeah and i think that captures a point but well they're trying to fight an ideological war with weapons yeah and that's a mental war that's the way the problem is and i agree with you on this one they didn't have a plan to try and neutralize the taliban because that's an ideology it's a way of life it was there before them so you can't just neutralize this in, in a week or two but you can maybe go for the problem people and say this guy seems to be the problem take him out that guy that guy that guy take them out and then try to create a new a new ideology on the basis of now then kind of flatline taliban mm. right so you can't neutralize the taliban that's fine and you've spoken about what could have been done differently in terms of the approach of how the issue of it in afghanistan in terms of superiority working with the people living with the people and all those things but then now we have to then look inward or not in order in our case but at least look at the lead of the free world joe yeah 
what happens next? What's next for Joe? Joe obviously needs to save face, right? He really needs to save face. Um, so we are going to see maybe, I wouldn't say more ground troops, but we are mm-hmm. going to see an escalation in some form, maybe it'd be a drone strike or something like that, right? We've had one already. Yeah. And uh, this guy that I follow on social media, he went in, him and a couple of ex-Special uh, Forces guys, and they went in and rescued them. And he just po- put a post up this morning that all the airports are no-go zone. They're actually departing. He's been told he can't come back in now. It's just, it's mm. done, right? So this begs my question, right? Now the U.S. has a surplus of troops, Right. You're losing income. You know, as much as we wanted to say, hey, let's have a ministry of transparency and stuff, you need to feed the beast. If there's no money coming in for more, where are you going to find another avenue? So I think Sleepy Joe is going to find another war to fight. Right. Mm. Um, I'm sure they're in the works trying to find some so, somewhere else, right? Because the military <laughs> industrial complex isn't just going to shut down just like that. Yeah. Uh, so I think you know, Joe is going to find another place to fight. They, uh, they, they have so what's that, the two trillion dollar um, U.S. defense budget. Those generals and CIA aren't going to say, "Hey, fuck, let's give that the money now." You know, um, mm. it's not realistic. Um, so that's just my two interpretations of that. W- what do you think? I think Joe probably remain in power because as much as the media is, is screaming and shouting against them, but time is moving and before you know it, the 31st will roll around, they will pull out and people will try and forget about this slowly. The problem might arise if they leave behind a number of Americans behind the enemy lines. And then if that's the case, things might not look pretty for him. I think he might only lose power at the next elections. I think that's what probably going to happen as far as I can see. Because as far as I know, I might be wrong. As far as I know, I don't remember U.S. presidents failing so completely his term. So even Trump, they tried impeaching him, but it, it eventually was able to complete his term as well. So the last day, so the last hour. So I think that might be the same thing with Joe. Complete the term, next elections, it gets dropped by the population. And then in terms of Harris, I think, yeah, she's had a good run. She's done this and that, but that might be the end of her career. She might go back to state politics and yeah, that might be it. And then the last one, the Taliban is now in control of Afghanistan. They're in control of the levers of power and the population as well. They've got some allies in China and Russia, Pakistan, and other nations we don't know of as well as of yet. What can we expect or what should we probably expect from them? Because they've come out and said there'll be rights for females, they'll go to school, they'll get jobs. But obviously within the, 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 the confines of Sharia law, what would what can we expect from them possibly? Taliban light. No. Um, <laughs> that's the simple answer. Um, I think seeing is believing, man. Uh, we can say, fuck, they're going to let all the girls do whatever they want within the confines of the religion. But seeing is believing. Mm. And they the key to the Taliban staying in power is them to stay united. And obviously there's, very, there's various sects uh, within the... Um, Taliban, Sunni, uh, Sunni, Shiites, and so forth, uh, the Pashtun, Pashtun tribe, and so forth. So you have to find a compromise amongst everybody because someone strict Sharia law, someone so managing the and negotiating that everybody remains unified and on the same platform 
is mm. is uh, is going to be key. That's going to be, they need to forget about everybody else. That is going to be key to staying united and staying in power, right? I don't see radical advances for women. I really don't. But I think that you know the Taliban has said that they will be in a, they will allow women into the government. But like I said, you won't see radical changes. But I think yeah. there will be appeasements and stuff like that. Um, yeah, and for the aid. For the aid. I mean, you know, there was a one guy convicted. Uh, it's a vice documentary. Um, he got accused of stealing cattle and so forth. And they wanted his arm. So you're just going to see, they wanted his hand. So you are still going to see those punishments and they're going to be harsh and stuff like that because that's the law, the Sharia law. Mm -hmm. So um, you're going to see that, but I think we might see more reforms and stuff like that. So, but I don't, the key to them staying in power is to, but it's a balancing act. They are going to have to appease everybody just to stay in the power. Uh, within the Taliban, they're going to have to appease everybody within the Taliban. Yeah, it's going to be difficult to please within and with us as well because now you're going to have to then think about the aid as well. What your allies want from you, what China wants from you, because China is quite a dominant kind of approach towards the allies of saying, do X, Y, or Z, or then that's where the balancing act comes in for the Taliban. Now, how do they balance your Chinese friends and your American aid? Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see, but yeah, I think that's me for the day. Not necessarily for missing you. I, I just want to, before you tie this in the bow, I just want to end off with a couple of quotes, if you don't mind. Sure, sure. Um, so this is by Jeremy Ward Hardy, um, and he was like, the Afghan war has clearly reached a similar stage. Uh, it's clearly reached a stage similar to that moment at your child's party where you, where you realize you've forgotten to give the other parents a pickup time. Yeah, I'll, I'll repeat that. The Afghan war has clearly reached the stage similar to the moment at your child's party where you realize you've forgotten to give the other parents a pickup time. Kids are running wild, you know. And um, I, 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 th I thought they're very poignant, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And then the upheavals in Afghanistan are not an Afghan thing. It its upheaval root has roots outside the country, which eventually led to the current the country being a hub of terrorism with a different agenda. Um, and then the final quote is, winning in Afghanistan is having, the country, is having a country that is stable enough to ensure that there's no safe haven for Al-Qaeda or for militant Taliban. That welcomes Al-Qaeda. That's really the measure of success for the United States. So you, you've got to wonder, was it... Was it worth it? You know, the misery in the water in Afghanistan is reminiscent of images from the 30 years war. Um, so, uh, you know, with those, with those two, three quotes that I put out there, I think it's time to pick up the kids from the party. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah, man, let's, yeah, let, let's say no more. We've, we've said all you can for now. And yeah, let's park it there and then allow the folks to have a good one and stay safe. And important notes, the Taliban is not a terrorist group. It's a political organization, I think, given how they do things, mm. economics, politics, yeah, yeah. aid and whatnot. So also facts that I don't know if you talk about the Taliban, the political group, not a terrorist group, facts that I didn't as well, whenever you talk about the Taliban. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I think, thank you for actually acknowledging that. I think we, we also need to 
you know, I just, I think we may have been very critical of America. And to anybody listening, like, we know the Taliban have done bad shit. Um, and we know that uh, that they've killed. And, but, you know, I think the, the main crime should be that they harbored Osama bin Laden. Everything after that is after the fact. Because after the invasion, then they're just fighting the occupying army. So uh, exactly. we're, not, we, we're not excusing what the Taliban did and so forth. But we... Uh, yeah, and a quick note, right? As much as they've done bad things, there's a reason why they survived for 20 years. They also had a bit of public support as well. That's important to note as well, the public support within the country as well for the, for the organization. 100%. Um, and reach out to us if you want to see the actual um, articles that we're talking about, the documentaries, the books. I'll gladly send them to your email address yeah. and so forth. Um, just so you know that we're not talking shit, you know, we didn't come up with these numbers um, and so forth. Like everything we did was, we try to be well-researched and stuff like that. You know, it may come across as like we like talking shit, which we do, but <laughs> we try to talk shit with some sense in it, you know? Yeah. And that's the commission. Have a good one, folks. All right. Take care.